0: Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. If you do have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. I want to introduce myself to you this morning. My name is J.D. Lowry, one of our teaching pastors here. Um, Yeah got a fan. What's up? I also, also have the awesome uh, privilege of our young adults ministry. And if you're new here, if you're a young adult, I would love to say what, what's up to you. So come say hey to me. Um, love to meet you. Super glad that you came to church today. This is a great church to be a part of. Um, and I love Crossroads. Crossroads is great. Amen. Yeah. Um, Well, we're going to start off back in World War II. You know, I always got these little history anecdotes. But back in World War II, there was a statistician named Abraham Wald. They brought a picture of him. Um, There's Abraham, Mr. Wald, right there. Uh, He was a British statistician. And whenever he was, uh, it was during World War II. And the British, they would send bombers over to Europe. And they would, you know, bomb the cities and the bases over there. And then they would return. And they asked Abraham Wald to help them identify where they should armor up their bombers some more. And I brought a picture of the bombers, uh, or of uh, the stats that he was looking at, and he looked at, he compiled all these bombers and where they were hit via bullets and flak. and he looked at them, and he made this image, this picture, and compiled where they were all hit, and they asked him where to armor up the planes. And he said, we need to armor up the planes where those red dots aren't. See, because the only planes he's getting to look at were the planes that were returning home. And so what he saw was our bombers can be hit in all these red areas and make it home. But if they are hit in the areas where there are no bullet holes, they're not making it back. So we need to armor up where the damage isn't. Now this counterintuitive thinking is what saved many lives in World War II for the British, for the RAF. And this same counterintuitive thinking can, in some ways, save our lives as we approach this world with a counterintuitive way. See, we're going to look at a sermon that Jesus preaches today that has counterintuitive logic. It has logic that is counterintuitive to the logic of that day, but it's also counterintuitive to the logic of today in 21st century Western culture. In Luke chapter 6, we're going to read verses 12 through 26. You have your copy of God's Word. You can follow along should be in your handout. should be on the screen. Verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. And Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came from him. Came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now it's on the onset of this message that I want to point out something. If we go back to the beginning of that text, I want to point out something that may seem obvious, but I want us to camp out here for a second. If you look in the verses 12 through 16, in these days he went out on the mountain to pray, and he continued to pray all night to God. And so he goes to pray. This is Jesus, right? He goes to pray, and he prays all night. And the point I want us to understand here is that prayer is important, right? Simple. Prayer is important. Yes, amen, right? Like, prayer is important. We ought to take time to do it, especially before big deceit, Big decisions. But here, Jesus, who make no mistake, is God. Jesus is God. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And John 1 talks about how Jesus in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you're like, JD, how do I know that Jesus is the Word? Well, it says because then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God. And he goes before he's about to make this decision, he goes to God in prayer. If Jesus, who is God, needs to go to God in prayer, how much more do us who are not God need to go to God in prayer? Crossway, they did a survey of Christians. So, this is of believers about their prayer life. And they found that a large majority of those who were surveyed, again, of believers who were surveyed, had not spent more than 10 minutes in prayer in the last 24 hours. 10 minutes. of Gen Z respondents said they had not prayed more than 10 minutes in the last 24 hours of believers. What is keeping us from praying? In that survey, Christians, like, they found that only 2% of believers were satisfied with their overall prayer lives. They found that the biggest impediment to prayer, over 57% of people said the biggest impediment for them praying was distractions. I'd be bold enough to say we are not too busy to pray. We are too easily distracted and too easily entertained. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, said this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promise of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are, too, we are far too easily pleased. Some of us are content with the things that the world gives us, and can I just say what Jesus offers is so much better than anything this world can give you. What Jesus offers is so much greater and so much higher and so much more fulfilling than anything that we can get, and yet we spend 10 minutes in prayer. Jesus had a lot going on here, and yet he still made time to pray. You may say to me, J.D., I've got, I don't have time for this. Like, my day is too busy. Like I got too much going on. I don't have time to pray. Well, I would ask you this, what is your screen time? What is my screen time? Do you know the average American spends seven hours and four minutes a day staring at a screen? Martin Luther said this, if we're saying, listen off all the things that we have and why we can't pray, Martin Luther said this, he said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. What if we looked at our busy schedule and said, there's no way, I've got to pray. I've got to. I can't do this without prayer. This day is too big. It's too busy. It's too full. I have to go to God. How would that change everything in our lives? And you, if you don't believe me, just try to pray more than 10 minutes a day. You're like, well, J.D., I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to do. And for a lot of us, that's true. We've maybe gone to church our whole lives, and nobody's taught us how to pray. And they say, well, you know, pray the, pray the Lord's Prayer or do this. So I want to give you something practical. There's tons of things, but I want to give you something practical today. If you, if you walk away with nothing, you can walk away with this. And it's an acronym that I've done before at prayer night. It's called P.A.C.E., the P.A.C.E. of Prayer. Whenever I'm alone with the Lord, sometimes I go through this acronym, and I begin with P, which is praise. And as a posture of praise... In prayer, I will lift up my hands to to my Father, and I'll praise Him for who He is. I praise Him for what He does. I praise Him for for saving me. I praise Him, and I thank Him for all that He's done. And I'm just like, wow, God, you're amazing. And I praise Him. It's a great way to start prayer, right? The next one is A, which is acceptance. And I will take my hands that were up here, and I'll bring them down here with palms to the sky as if I'm receiving what the Lord is giving me. I'm accepting his forgiveness in my life. I'm accepting his calling that he has in my life. I'm accepting uh, my situation, and I'm accepting it from the Lord. i got my hands up to the sky, and I'm receiving the gifts from my Father. The next thing, C, which is confession or commitment. Put my palms to the ground as if I'm believing my sin at the cross. I'm leaving my struggles. I'm leaving my stressors. I'm leaving that at the Lord. I'm like, God, here it is. I don't need it. I don't want it. It's yours. I can't handle it. I leave it there. The last one I pray is embrace, and I open up my arms like this, and I pray for those around me. They don't know the Lord. I pray for my family. I pray his blessing on their life. I pray for this church. I pray for a lot of you. I pray for people that don't know the, no, don't know the Lord. I pray for, for people that I need to share the gospel with. I'm embracing the calling that God has in my life. Pace of prayer. Something practical for you to take home and practice in your life. It is so countercultural to be so busy and say, I got to take time and I got to pray. that's what we've been called to do. I was so convicted to this point. As I'm writing this sermon, looking at my notes, as I was writing this sermon, I was like, gosh, I need to pray. And I took 45 minutes to an hour. I was just praying in my office, praying for each of you, praying for some of you who lifted your hands, that you don't know Jesus. I was praying for you days ago in my office, because prayer is the most important thing we can do. If If we don't know what to do, pray. We ought to pray Jesus Prayed before he would choose his 12. We need to pray. Next thing I see is when people hear about the power of Jesus, they come and experience it for themselves. See, because if you look in verses 17 through 19, this whole, mat, like this great crowd began to show up of his disciples and just other people who wanted to have their ailments taken care of, wanted to be exercised of demons, wanted freedom, wanted. Uh, wanted curing for diseases. They needed help, and they heard that Jesus would heal them, and they came to see. God is always at work, church. Amen? Is God at work here in this church? Is God at work all around the world in all the churches? God is moving, praise the Lord, right? Is God at work in our men's ministry? Is God at work in our joy ministry? I've seen joy shirts. Women's, students, kids, kids young adults, God is at work. He's at work in equipped Bible. He's at work in equip discipleship. Praise the Lord. He's at work in Crossroads, and I praise God for that. That's incredible. But if we look around in our ministries, in this church, we will see empty seats. And it is not because God is not working. See, when people hear about what God is doing, they come to see it for themselves. Are we telling the story of what God is doing? Are we talking about, like, are we, go, are we leaving church, going to lunch, and, and, and sitting and talking to a waiter and not even mentioning whenever we baptize people? Like, oh, man, it was awesome. People got saved. People got baptized. Praise the Lord. That was so cool. Are we telling anyone about what God is doing? When people hear about the movement of God, people come see the movement of God. They do. They do. You don't believe me? Just this past year, a few months ago, a little town called Wilmore, Kentucky, there's a little Christian university there called Asbury University. And on February 8th, a normal chapel service took place, just a normal run-of-the-mill chapel service. But at the end of that chapel service, students begin to confess sin. They begin to share what God was doing in their lives. And God began to move. And you know what happened? That chapel service that started on February 8th did not conclude until February 24th. In that little town of Wilmore, Kentucky, in which 6,000 people reside, was overwhelmed with 70,000 people coming to see the revival, coming to experience what God was doing. Listen, when Jesus is at work, if people hear about it, they will come. And God is at work right now in this church, and God is at work right now in your life. And if God is at work right now in your life, shouldn't we tell what God is doing? I've got a scripture um, that's framed in my office. It's one of my life verses, and it also is one of the life verses for, for regen that we have here at church. And it's Titus 3, 3 through 7 says, For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What if we went out into the world, and we shared, not even, like, I, I love sharing Scripture, and we ought to do that, but what if we applied that to ourselves, and we, we went out, and we told our friends, we're like, for I myself was once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures. I passed my own days in malice and envy. I hated everyone, and everybody hated me, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, my Savior appeared, He saved me, not because of my own works, but because of his grace. If we declared that to the world, the fact that God worked in our lives, people will come and see. And people will want to experience that same cleansing. The people in this this first century Roman Empire, Palestine, they heard about what Jesus was doing only by word of mouth. We've got all of this social media, all of this connection, and yet we have empty chairs in this room. It's not because God's not working. Are we telling the story of what God is doing in our own lives and in the life of this church? And I could give a rip about filling up this church. We we need to fill up heaven. There's salvation to be had for lost around us. So share it with people. This text, it's incredibly convicting. That we're about to get into. We ain't even gotten into the super countercultural stuff yet. Here we go into the the Beatitudes. If you look down in verse 20, I want us to come empty to Jesus. Come empty to Jesus. Verse 20, he lifted up his eyes and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, in 21st century America, we love keeping up with the Joneses, right? Like you gotta have like the bigger house, and we need the well-behaved kids, and you gotta have the coolest new tech and the the big new truck and the garage, right? And we can spend so much money trying to impress people we don't even know. And we can never be vulnerable. Otherwise, people might think that we're not perfect. Maybe some of us came into church today with a fake smile on. You know, you got, you got out of the car exhausted. You were refereeing your kids fighting in the backseat, you know. You come here, and maybe you just don't want to be seen as how you actually feel. You walk in and five different people ask you how you're doing. You're like, I'm doing great. You were even hesitant to come to church today. Or maybe you're watching online because you didn't come to church today. Because you haven't been living as you feel that you ought to be. You have this misconception that only people who go to church have their lives together. Is that true? Or even worse, do you think that you can only go to Jesus after you've overcome your addiction or after you've overcome the relational issues in your marriage or after your kids, your prodigal kids come home or like after you've got your life figured out, you can only go to Jesus then? I remember hearing a story about a woman who who wouldn't go to church because she had no money to put into the offering plate. How many of us miss out on the life that Jesus has for us because we fear that we have nothing to offer? Can I tell you something in love? And I tell you this because I love you. You don't have anything to offer. God is not impressed with your bank account. He's not impressed with your house. He's not impressed with your car. He's not impressed with your job. He's not impressed with your charisma or your personality. He's not impressed with your singing voice or your sense of humor. He does not invite you to himself because he needs you on his team. He invites you to himself because you need him. And the only thing that we even contribute to our own salvation, hear me, there's all these people that will tell you you can, you know, just be a better person, do better things, give money to the church. The only thing that we earn, the only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that condemns us. That's the only thing we bring. Jesus brings the rest. He brings the grace and the mercy and the blood. And he brings the resurrection power. That's what he brings. We bring the sin. Come empty to Jesus. Next. Come hungry to Jesus. Verse twenty-one: Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. I grew up. Uh, my dad's a pastor. Little small-town churches, you know. He's currently in First Baptist Terrell, but I remember as a kid we'd be at First Baptist Abernathy, the metropolitan area, Abernathy, Texas. You guys, everybody knows Abernathy. You. Go antelopes, right? You know, at Petersburg? No, nobody. Okay, that's fine. It's fine. You know, usually people clap when they. It's it's fine. Um, <laughs> Not big towns, right? Not large churches my dad would pastor. And we didn't have a lot. And so these sweet people in the church, in order to love their pastor and his family, would invite us over for lunch after church. Um, Take a load off my parents with their kids and, like, feed us. It was super gracious. But you know what? I was a little jerk as a kid, right? Because here's the deal. Sometimes when you go over to other people's houses for lunch, they can't cook that great. Y'all stop with those judgmental looks, all right? <laughs> Y'all, you get this pious attitude. I can't believe he, this ungrateful swine, like he's gonna sit here and not be grateful for these free meals. It's not always great. you know what I would do sometimes? I'd pregame a little bit, all right? <laughs> I'd pregame, because you know, you don't wanna go to lunch and leave hungry. And so I would pregame, I would eat granola bars and Pop Tarts or whatever before lunch. And then we'd go to lunch, and I wouldn't be super hungry. And if the food was bad, I was blessed. But you know what? Sometimes the food was awesome. And I made a mistake not coming hungry to lunch. I spoiled my lunch. And I can't think, I just wonder how many of us come to Jesus already filled up with junk when Jesus is offering us something that's far better. Ultimately, we need to come to Jesus hungry. We need the bread of life. I uh, A couple years ago, I was was an intern at a church in Plano, and um, I had this girl I wanted to marry, and I did marry her, so yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Gorgeous. Let's go. Um, I married her, but at the time, I was an intern. You know what interns are known for? Not making lots of money, right? And which I'm told you need that to get married, Um, and so I, I, you know, I wanted the full-time job, and I felt called to ministry, so I was interviewing with different churches for different positions, and I found this one church, kind of a church south of Fort Worth, and I was like, ah, this is gonna be awesome, right? Like, it was gonna be a student pastor, one high school town is great, cool city, like, it was gonna be awesome. I go down there for, like, kind of the final situation, like, final round of interview, like, I was going down there, I was checking up the church, meeting people, and I realize very quickly, once I get down there, that this is not the place. See, the pastor, <laughs> he had fired the previous student guy. And that previous student guy was on the search committee. <laughs> and then his wife, the, guy, the student, former student pastor's wife, is also on staff at the church, which I'm like, how does this work? And like, she was also on staff at the church as a kid's person. And the pastor told me, he's like, yeah, I'm probably going to let her go pretty soon. And I was like, what is this place? And guys, it's funny, but you got to realize I was so discouraged. I was so sad because I thought that was the thing. I thought I had found it. I thought I had found my meal ticket. This was was it. This is my way to marry the woman of my dreams, start in ministry, be a pastor. I wasn't going to have to be an intern anymore. I was going to get to lead and serve in a ministry. I was going to get to teach. It was going to be awesome. It was everything I could ever want. And I realized this wasn't what God had for me. And I was so discouraged. And I was in in my hotel room there, just heartbroken. And I opened the Bible up to this text in John 6, 25 through 35. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Look what it says. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to, to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from the heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes from me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. So he was in that hotel room. As a heartbroken person, I realized this that I was chasing the sustenance of this world. I was chasing the next job. I was chasing a marriage. I was chasing relationships. I was chasing that next thing, wanting the sustenance, just spinning my wheels, filling myself up with junk, filling myself up with granola bars and Pop-Tarts when Jesus wanted me as a hungry man to come to him and ask for the bread of life. I remember having a feeling like asking God, what do I do? And I was so challenged whenever he said in verse 28, the people, they asked him, they said, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus said simply this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So we may not understand what's going on in our life or why or what the situation is. We don't get in. We're like, God, why? Why did this happen? I wanted this job. I wanted this relationship. I needed that. And Jesus is saying, just simply believe in me. Trust me. Follow me. Stop chasing the things of this world and partake of the bread of life. He will sustain you. But come to him hungry, not full of junk, because it doesn't sustain you. We need Jesus. Next, come to Jesus broken. Come broken to Jesus. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Why does it seem that Jesus, like Jesus just wants poor, hungry, and broken people? What's the deal there? Well, I would say this because he wants all people. And all people are poor, hungry, and broken. Every single one of us. Poor, hungry, and broken. The only difference is some of us realize it and some of us don't. That's why you're blessed if you realize it and you can admit it. How am I blessed if I weep? Listen, when we realize that our brokenness and our sin will condemn us and kill us, when we realize that it's sin that's killing our marriages and our relationships with our kids, when we realize that it's sin that separates us from God, and it's all our own decisions that have left us broken on the side of the road, that is a blessing when we realize it because that will cause us to weep. And when we weep, a lot of us have experienced it. When we weep, that is when Jesus does his best work. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifice, sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. How often we wrongly think that God wants what our friends and our family and our coworkers want from us. God does not need and does not want you to just suck it up and get over it. He doesn't need that from you. He wants your broken heart. He wants your contrite spirit. He wants your desperation in your soul. Because when you have desperation in your soul, you cry out to Jesus. When you don't, you try to fix it yourself. If we come to Jesus with a perspective that our relationship with Him is just icing on the cake of our life, I, we truly don't understand who He is. He is not icing on the cake, and my life is not cake, He is bread. And without him, I will die. As a matter of fact, without him, I'm already dead. I'm just a zombie looking for a grave. We are correct when we call out to him in desperation in our hearts. And if you call out to him with desperation, if you raised your hand this morning as you don't know Jesus, if you call out to him with desperation, I promise you this, Jesus meets you there. If you cry out to him as a believer, somebody who's followed Jesus for years, with desperation in your heart because you don't understand the situation you're going through in life, Jesus meets you there. God's word says, if you seek me, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you're crying out with all your heart, Jesus meets you. He does not despise a contrite spirit. That's what we need to do as believers. We need to cry out to Jesus, come empty Next thing I see here in this countercultural convicting message is I want us to see the woe. It says, "But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their for so their fathers did to the false prophets." The first woe that I see here is a woe of materialism. Woe to you who are rich. Listen, things can be nice, but they can't save you. This may be a woe to some of us in here that need to hear this this morning because maybe we feel like things are going okay in our life. Like, business is good, right? Like, got a new truck in the garage, feeling, feeling nice. Can afford to have your wife's nails done at all times. Like, I mean, you're crushing it. Yeah. Business is good. Jesus says, whoa, not because those things are bad, but because so often they can distract us from the death and sin that surrounds us. takes our eyes off the ball, gets us out of the game. Jesus cautions against these things. As believers, it's easy for us to look at lost friends that seem to be doing pretty good, and we think, "Ah, they're doing pretty good. You know, we might, it's easier to share the gospel with somebody who just got fired versus somebody who just got promoted. It's easy to point to Jesus, easy to point to life when people realize they're surrounded by death. That's why funerals are so like, can I just say, funerals are great opportunities to preach the gospel. That's why every funeral here at Crossroads, like, we come with the gospel hard. Because when people are recognizing that there's a reality of death in their life, they're prone to hear the gospel. But it's harder. When things are going well, it's harder to understand your need for Jesus when it seems like things are going okay. And can I just say, I think, Jesus, I think Satan's okay with us being okay. He's okay with us feeling like, oh, yeah, it's all right. And he wants us as believers to look at our lost friends and say, no, like, they're, they're doing fine. They don't need Jesus. Woe to them. Woe to us. Next, the woe of indulgence. Woe to you who are full now, for you should be hungry. Do you guys know that we live in a culture that wraps its steak in gold and then eats it? Legit. That's a real thing. I brought a picture of it. Um, that is a golden-wrapped steak that you can order in Dallas, actually. Not far. Like, this is in our culture. Like in Dallas, Texas, right off Woodall Rogers and Pearl, you can find that stake. It's eleven hundred dollars. You know, I think Satan is totally okay with us being distracted by our own wealth. Like we have so much as first as 21st century Western culture Americans, we are the richest people in the world, and I think Satan's okay with us being distracted by all of it. So much so that we don't cry out to Jesus and we don't see a need for the gospel. Satan loves it when we chase after indulgences and things of this world. I saw a video this past week of a college football football player. They were running a trick play, and the quarterback snapped the ball, rolled out left. The right guard started doing cartwheels on the field. Now, cartwheels aren't bad, but it's not football. Revolutionary stuff here at Crossroads this morning. It's not bad. It's just not football. All right. He's taking his eye off the game. He's trying to be a distraction hear me, we are in something far more serious than a football game. This world is dying and going to hell. And a lot of us are doing cartwheels on the field. We're being distracted by all those other things. There are missionaries on the the field that are sharing the gospel with unreached people groups that need our financial support. And I'm just saying, like, there's nothing wrong with material things, but maybe there's better use for the money that was used to buy that second boat. We're taking our eye off the ball. That's not bad, but it's not helpful. Woe of indulgence distracts us from the game, distracts us from the mission. What if we saw the blessings of God as an opportunity to further the mission of God here on earth? Next is a woe of avoiding problems. And our world loves this. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Have you ever known someone that's gone through a serious loss or a serious trauma and they just kind of laugh it off? It's heartbreaking to see. Like they go through some significant trauma and then they're just like making jokes about it. It's heartbreaking when people ignore the issues in their life. I remember a couple times in my life, as a kid, I would like share the gospel with a classmate or something. Sixth grade, I can remember, like sharing the gospel with somebody. And them just laughing in my face about the weight of their sin about the grace of god and i'm just trying to plead with them that jesus will save you but you have to admit that there's an issue laughing in my face woe to you who laugh because you will weep and i felt such heartbreak for them listen whether it's an addiction grief sin relational issue or medical problem please do not simply try to avoid the problem and laugh it off it's not helpful If you're feeling a temptation right now to just sit through this message and leave and continue avoiding your issues, Jesus is saying, woe to you. If you raise your hand at the beginning and say, I don't know Jesus, and you leave here not encountering him, woe to you because you have an opportunity. This is your moment. And if you leave, it doesn't hurt him. It hurts you when you avoid your problems. If I avoid my problems, it doesn't hurt anybody. It hurts me. We live in a culture that loves to Whistle past the graveyard, even though we're destined for the graveyard. We need to come to Jesus. And we need to come with an empty, broken, contrite spirit and cry out to Him and recognize our issues and not blow past the problems, but address them. And we do that by coming to Jesus. But I'll say this, when we come to Jesus, we need to come committed. Look in verses 22 through 23, and then jump down to verse 26. We see two sides of the same coin here. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil. On account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Here, I think we see two different things. We see two different types of believers. We see a persecuted believer and we see a patronized believer. I read that from some pastor. He said, persecuted and patronized, and I believe that's so profound. See, the the persecuted, they're completely committed to the calling that God has on their life. They live in such a way, they hear me, it demands a response. But the patronized Christian They practice a Christianity that is not spoken of in Scripture. They come to church maybe twice a month. They, uh, you know, have 47 Bibles at home but never read them. They listen to worship music in the car but don't live it out in their lives. They'll be listening to Bethel worship and then flipping people off. Like, it's it's not consistent. They avoid honest accountability and discipleship. They have sin in their life, and they're kind of okay with it. They practice a Christianity that is inoffensive to the most easily offended culture in the history of the world. Think about that. Will agrees that this culture is super easily offended, yet, the only time we seem to offend the culture is when we post our political views. They're called patronized because nobody actually encounters life change when they practice their gospel. This is the gospel of be a kind person. It demands no response, no surrender, and no repentance. And hear me, the Bible knows nothing of a gospel that preaches no surrender and no repentance. The gospel is all about recognizing that our ways are evil and turning and trusting in Jesus. If we're not doing that, that's not the gospel. Jesus, he declares that we have to surrender to him as Lord of our life. This world, they'll say things that are simply untrue. You can sleep with whoever you want to and there are no consequences. They'll say, God wants you to be happy. It's first opinions three, four, like that doesn't exist. They'll say things like love is love, which undefined word is undefined word. That's not, what does that even mean? It's false. They'll say things like, follow your heart, and can I just say this in love? Your heart's an idiot. My heart's an idiot. Every time I've listened to that sucker, I've ended up in a bad spot. Say things like, there's a bunch of different ways to heaven, but Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody, zero. No, like nobody comes to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me, except through Jesus. Jesus is the only way. That's the truth, and that's offensive because this world is all that, well, you know, we're all climbing the same mountain, just different paths. No, that is not the gospel. It is not that like it's, we're not all okay. We're not all going to the same place. And sometimes we get lulled into sleep because we start subscribing to this inoffensive, cultural, affirming gospel that is not in Scripture. We have to preach the truth even when it hurts. Now much of the responses that we'll get won't be fun. But Jesus Himself says that if people persecute you, you're blessed. This is the commitment that he wants. Grew up playing high school basketball, um, I was homeschooled, right, and homeschool basketball is a real thing, um, and my coach, before our last game, uh, we were about to play, and he gave us this speech, and ain't none of us playing in college, bunch of scrubs, like, I mean, you know, four points a game, what up, you know, dominant, domination, crushed it, let's go, um, you know, like 40%, or 50% from the free throw line, I mean, solid stats, like, I've got, I've got them down. Um, And our coach gave us this speech. He was like, hey, you need to leave this all out on the court because you can't play tomorrow. It's done. Today's it. This is the last day. This is it. This is the moment. Leave it all out there on the court. When he means that, when he says that, what he means is any energy that you would withhold for tomorrow is useless in your basketball career. It's useful for other things, but it's useless in your basketball career. Hear me, as believers, as people who don't know Jesus, tomorrow is not promised. For non-believers, you walk out of church today not having a relationship with Jesus, you don't know if tomorrow is going to come. Time is ticking. For those of us who know Jesus, perhaps we get lulled into sleep by, the, by chasing our career or chasing all this other stuff that we think is more important. But Jesus could come Tomorrow. And we can't just be getting around to gospel conversations. There should be urgency to it. Leave it all out there on the court because you don't know when time's up. And when we're in heaven, we can't be saying, well, I wish I would have done that. Wish I would have done this. Play as if we're in the game. Quit doing cartwheels on the field. Get in the game. But you can't get in the game if you're not on the team. If you don't know Jesus today, I believe Scripture says today is the day of salvation. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's all of us. 100% of us have sinned. We've all messed up. We've all separated ourselves from God. And because of that sin, we deserve death from God. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, because we were about to receive a death beam from God, he was about to kill us, and he has every right to. And Jesus stepped up on the cross in our way, took that punishment from us, died. We give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness so that we can have reconciliation to God. But Jesus didn't just die, he rose up from the dead three days later. So that we too, just as he died, if we've been buried with Christ in baptism, we too are raised up to walk in newness of life. And one day we will raise, if you're in Christ, you will raise and go and be with Jesus forever. And that's what our destination is. So why doesn't Jesus just take us immediately? Wouldn't that be better? He doesn't because he has a mission for you. And once you get in the game, but you can't get in the game until you're on the team. Bible says you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You walked in here without any confidence of your salvation. You can walk out with total assured confidence that Jesus has saved you, because that's what Scripture says. I'm not making this up. We're about to sing doxology where we praise God for who he is and what he's done. During the song, go talk to one of our prayer team members at the corner. They would love nothing more than to share with you how to receive Jesus. They'll walk you through. They'll pray with you. Maybe you're out here today and you've just had, you've had a week. It's been rough. And you need some fulfillment. You need prayer. They're there for you as well. I'm here for you. Come talk to me. Jesus wants you empty. He wants you hungry. He wants you broken. But here's the beauty of Jesus. He doesn't leave you there. He fulfills you. He cleanses you. He feeds you. And he purifies you. Let today be the day of salvation for somebody. Jesus, you're good. We love you. We praise you for all that you've done, all that you're doing in hearts and minds right now all across this room. God, I pray that you would move in power. Lord, I pray that you convict sin, that you would draw us to yourself. For those of us who don't know you, Lord, we're begging, we're pleading with you to save souls today because you are powerful enough to do it. God, I pray that you would move. God, for those of us who who are stressed from the week we just had, or 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 we've been chasing after all this stuff and not resting in you, God, I pray that we would run to you, Jesus, that we would come broken, that we would come hungry, that we would come empty to you, and that you would fill us up as you are so good to do. You are the bread of life. Lord, let us partake. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.